Well, good morning, church family. How are you doing this morning? Good. So good to see you. You can do a little better than that. How are you doing this morning? All right. Uh, so you just watched two of the missionaries that we support. November, what, what Pastor Ashley said, is Missions Month, where we highlight our missionaries, our uh, missions partners, both global and local, and we, we put them before you. And you know what? Uh, th they deserve more than once a month, and I'm going to make an effort to put them before you uh, more often than that. This is why, because missions is such a huge part of what we do at Red Hills Church. It is so integrated in our DNA that we have allocated resources, thousands of dollars every month to give to missionaries, to give to mission organizations, local and global around the world. And we cannot do that without your partnership with the church in giving and generosity towards, uh, towards our missions organization. In fact, you received this card as you walked in, if you would grab that. It lists all of our mission partners, both local and global, on there. And there is a QR code, and, and I encourage encourage you to give specifically towards missions. Uh, you, you know that, that the tithe, the 10% is not the ceiling of what we give. It's actually the floor, all right? <laughs> Some of you don't like to hear that. You're like, but, but listen, it is, it is the floor of what we give. And so I'm asking you to give alongside of many of us on staff to our missions uh, organization. And, and here, here's what I love. Uh, when you give through Red Hills Church to missions, 100% of that goes right to the field. You know, a lot of organizations will take 10 or 20% for administrative costs. We don't do that at our church. We give 100% of it towards the people on the field giving and serving their life and promoting the gospel of Jesus in a various uh, different ways. And we believe in them and we believe in their organization. So you giving to Red Hills Church, specifically to missions, it sets us up to be able to give uh, and, and continued support. Here, here's what I love. I'm going to say one more thing before we get into the Bible today, is that um, throughout the whole pandemic, uh, we continued to give to our missions organizations without ever dropping anyone, without ever having a conversation of do we give or do we not give. We continued to faithfully give because we believe in what they're doing. And we can't do that without your partnership in giving. So I ask that you pray about that, that you think and consider giving. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's $20 a month uh, to give towards missions. Maybe it's 100 but help us support our missions organizations. Are you with me? All right. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. We are going to read perhaps what we've been waiting for in this series, The Journey Home, Finding Your Way Back to God. We've been looking at the life of Moses and understanding and realizing that his journey is a journey back to God and to the presence of God because it's in the presence of God where you find safety and security. It's not in your house up on the hill with a white picket fence, all right? It's not in your job. You don't find security in your job. You find security, true security in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we, we're looking at Moses as a grid for how we find ourselves and find our way back to God, and we're going to look at perhaps the greatest story in the book of Exodus. But I want to talk about story for a moment. How, how many of you have a favorite movie? All right, a few of you. All right, I don't think you had enough caffeine this morning. All right, 
you know that, that the best movies or the best stories have five essential ingredients. If you're in film school, you understand this. If you like English or writing, you understand this, that the best movies have five essential ingredients. They have great characters. Uh, they have a, 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 an amazing setting, right? The location of where it's at. A, a great story has a plot, like it's interesting. Like if a movie doesn't catch me in the first 10 or 15 minutes, I'm not going to sit and watch through. It's just a waste of my time. If a book doesn't catch me in the first two chapters, I'm going to put it down and go to the next one. Anybody else like that? I know some of you are going to faithfully read through that, not me. If it's not interesting, if it doesn't have a good plot, all right, if it's like a Lifetime movie or something like that, uh, or Hallmark movie, like I, it's just, you know, it's not going to get there for me. Sorry, Hallmark fans. Uh, every, every story has a good conflict, right? There, there is a sequence of events where there is conflict. Uh, and it, it's not just, uh, you know, war conflict. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, but, but if it is a love story, even your favorite uh, romantic comedies, they have tension and they have conflict. Every st- great story has a conflict. And that, in that conflict, it reaches a climax. And once you hit the climax, is the best part of the story. And then it reaches a resolution, right? Every great story follows this arc. It follows these ingredients. My favorite movies are, I'll just tell you, uh, I'm a typical dude. My favorite movie is Braveheart, all right? Uh, Nothing new there. My favorite TV series is Band of Brothers. Anybody? Come on, somebody. All right, thank you. We can watch this together. I'm finding some potential friends in the audience today, all right? (laughs) Uh, uh, I love Gladiator. I love Lord of the Rings. And every single one of them have characters that are interesting. They have a setting, right? The location, they've got plot from the beginning to the end. They've got conflict and the climax and they all have resolution. They all have resolution. I I remember going to a movie. I don't even remember what it was, but it was an interesting movie and then it ended with no resolution. You've ever read a book or watched a movie like that? It's the stupidest thing in the world. Like every story has a resolution and you're thinking, Aaron, why are you talking about stories? Because when we read the Bible and what we're going to read today, we're reading the greatest stories ever told. And in the story of the Exodus, specifically the Red Sea crossing, We're going to see and read. This is the climax of the story of Israel. And it follows this path. Think about it. The characters. You've got Moses against Pharaoh. You've got God against the the gods of Egypt. You've got Israel versus Egypt. You've got the elders versus the sorcerers. uh, Elders in Israel versus the sorcerers of Egypt. You've got great characters. Right, you've got setting, it's in the desert, or Midian, or the Red Sea. It's got plot. When you opened up the book of Exodus, I mean, it starts right off the bat that Moses was born, and he was put in the Nile River in a sea of reeds. Right, there is incredible plot, and then there is conflict. And the conflict is throughout. And, and I'm skipping a, several chapters, I'm skipping all the plagues in Egypt to get to the point of the Red Sea crossing and we have conflict and right here what we're going to read today is the climax of the story of Exodus. I mean it's thrilling when you read it with fresh eyes in a fresh perspective of what is happening to Israel. This is the climax of every story and a side note is this I think every story the Bible doesn't follow the essential ingredients it actually created it. Do you realize that every great movie is just a shadow of the biblical story? 
of good and evil, of, of God always winning, and, and there's always resolution, and this story is no different. So look uh, with me on Exodus chapter 13. I'm going to skip around. Uh, I'm going to warn you, and so all the, the scripture on your notes, I'm not going to read all of that today, but I'm going to start in a first few verses in 13 verses, um, where are we at? Verses 17 in 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert roads towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. I'm going to skip down to chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go, and we have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with them. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt which with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi uh, Hiroth, opposite of Baal Zephon. I'm going to skip down a few uh, verses to uh, verses uh, 21 and 22, but let me just summarize the parts and before. You, you feel the tension in the conflict. Israel is hemmed in by the desert with their backs against the sea, and the entire power of the Egyptian army is coming to get them. And they come to where they are camped, and there is the cloud, which is the presence of God, which is, which is obscuring Egypt at night, but giving light to Israel during the daytime. And, and you, know, you know the story, right? They're at the sea, and they cry out to God, and they cry out to Moses, and God says, Moses, I want you to take your staff, and I want you to part the sea, and this is that moment. This is the climax of the book of Exodus, verses 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And that night the Lord drove the sea back with the strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. This story, I'm going to end here because I'm going to pick up on this the rest next week. This story is the climax of where Exodus has been leading us. This is the actual Exodus, the departure from Egypt into the desert towards the promised land. And, and what I love about the story is that 
that, that God is leading Israel to a new land and a new place, and his design and intention is to destroy the stranglehold that Egypt has over Israel. And so they have no power over Israel anymore, and they don't have an enemy like Egypt. They will have new enemies, the Canaanites, but they will never have a power like they had in Egypt. And in this moment, they go from slaves to a nation. They, they, they go from a bound up by slavery into a free people. They get a new identity. They get a new calling. They have a new destiny. They have a new land. And everything changes for them when the, the waters part on the Red Sea and they walk on dry ground. The, the Exodus narrative, this is so important. It is the foundational event in the entire Bible. It is in the biblical narrative it is the paradigm for deliverance and salvation of all people. The Exodus is the story. Now, I wish I could take you through the entire Bible and trace all these stories back to Exodus. But, but, but I want to tell you that, that Exodus is foundational to the story, even the story of Jesus. It's not just the climax of the book of Exodus. It's the climax of the entire Old Testament. It is the event that Israelites put their faith in and trust in in walking on dry ground. It becomes the paradigm for deliverance and salvation. Now, I can't possibly preach all there is to know about the Exodus in one sermon in 40 minutes. I'm already running out of time. So I'm going to do it in two sermons because I think it's so important in understanding this. But let me start here. The two sacraments that we celebrate as a church, that the Protestant church celebrates, the two sacraments, communion and baptism. Communion and baptism, both are rooted in the story of the Exodus. Are you with me? Communion in the Passover, where the angel of death came into Egypt, killed the firstborn, but passed over all the Israelites' household that put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. And when Jesus gave communion to his disciples, he essentially is saying, I am the blood of the lamb over your doorpost. And this is my body, and this is my blood. It is rooted in the Exodus story. And the second one is baptism. Baptism. Now, the Red Sea crossing has become the paradigm for Christian baptism. In fact, you could say the Red Sea crossing was the first baptism that happened in the Bible. That the Israelites passed through the waters... All right, and I'm going to spoil this because I'm going to do this next week. Their enemies follow. Their enemies are swallowed up. And when they come out of the water, they are a new people. They are free. And their enemy is defeated. And they leave their bondage and slavery behind. The, 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 the Red Sea story is where we get our version of baptism, of what we believe in the Christian faith. It is the first baptism. Let me show you a few scriptures to point this out. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all 
baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then Jesus says this. Jesus uses language that if you knew Hebrew and you knew Greek and you knew the story, would immediately tie you to Exodus. He says this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over, walked through dry ground from death to life. So the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus, it isn't just a good story. It is the story. And Jesus doesn't just follow the paradigm of the story. Actually, the Exodus is foreshadowing Jesus. It is foreshadowing Jesus. That Jesus was the dry ground 1,400 years prior to his incarnation here on earth. What is baptism? Baptism is three things of what we believe. It is expression of our faith publicly. It is confirmation of our salvation. And it is initiation in the church. That baptism represents in the physical what has already happened in our hearts in the spiritual. This is why we talk about water baptism and we do it uh, about four times a year and encourage people if you've made a decision for Jesus to walk through the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism does not save you. You are already saved. It's like the marriage ceremony of two people who've already committed a lifelong relationship together. It's that confirmation. It's that expression. It's that initiation. There's so much meaning in baptism, and, 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 and this sermon today isn't about baptism. I just, I want you to understand that when you read the stories of Scripture, it's all tied together. There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And how we live today and the things we practice and the things we do as Christians are rooted in the Exodus story. And this is what I've understood and where I want to go. As you follow Jesus, you will all cross your Red Sea. Do you understand that all of us have an Exodus story? We all have a story of something we're saved from and something that we're saved to. And all of us, whether you've made the decision or not, some of you have not made the decision yet, but you're on the verge of making the decision. Some of you already had. It means that you've crossed your Red Sea or you're about to cross your Red Sea. That we all have an exodus story. We all have something in our life that has kept us in bondage and locked up and imprisoned. But we all have an opportunity to walk through on dry ground and experience freedom and experience a new life. We all have an exodus story. We all have a spiritual baptism story. Something we leave, something that dies, somewhere we go and the people we go there with. Everything we believe today it floods and comes out of this paradigm of the Exodus. So I want to talk about your Exodus story today in terms of what we read in Scripture. I want to talk about four elements of your personal Exodus. And the first one is this. If you're, if you're taking notes, it's this. That, that oftentimes in your personal story, in your personal journey, that God will lead you on the longer route. God will lead you on the longer route. Verse 17, it says this in, in chapter 13. It says that God did not lead them through Philistine country, even though it was shorter. 
Where did he lead them? He led them on the longer route to the Red Sea. Now, why would God do this? Well, first of all, we we understand this, that, that God takes them the long way to keep them and protect them from fighting the Philistine army. But, but, but does this mean that God couldn't beat the Philistine army? Well, of course he could. But, but this was not about God's ability. It was about Israel's maturity. It was about them being able to face, after fleeing Egypt, a formidable enemy. They were nothing like Egypt, but they still would have been a formidable en- uh, enemy. And God took them on the longer route. This is what I've understood and understand about our faith. God often keeps us in a place longer than we want to be for reasons that we can't see while we're in it. In fact, only can you see God's hand at work sometimes in your life when you've crossed through the sea. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Only when you get beyond the crisis that you're in in your life can you see God working and God moving in that place. It's only when time has passed that you see the reasons that you did not take the short route, but God had you on the longer route. What's the longer route? Well, for some of you, maybe the longer route is you're praying for a miracle in your life. And we believe in miracles. We're a house of miracles, right? We sang that song last week. God is a God of miracles. We believe it. You believe in miracles. What happens when you pray and you don't see the miracle? Right? You know, I I meet with some of my friends that, 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 that they say, Aaron, like miracles should happen like right away instantaneously. And if it doesn't, doesn't happen, it's because we don't have enough faith. Yeah, but when people come to me and they pray for a miracle and they pray for God to, to cure them of cancer and it doesn't happen, what do we say? What do we do? How do we lead and shepherd and pray for that? Right? We don't have the answers to everything of why God keeps us in a place longer than what we want, but we do know this. We do know that God has a purpose and a plan and a meaning for keeping us in a place longer than we want to be. And sometimes God takes us on the longer route. Maybe for some of you, the longer route, you're praying that God for to, to a change in career or change in location, or maybe you're thinking about moving and you're praying and you're wondering and you're hoping and you're seeking and God has you in a place longer than you want to be. You see, I I would suggest this, that you don't fight that place, but you actually embrace that place. Because it is in those places that God will reveal to you, speak to you, change you, and transform you. I was having a conversation with one of my kids uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about the the days of creation, the the story of creation. We're talking about belief and faith and science, and we're just having this great conversation about the the seven days of creation. You know, are they 24 literal, 24-hour days? Are they, you know, seasons? All of you, if you've walked through your journey of faith, you've kind of had to walk through, like, answering the questions of Genesis. And and we're talking... uh, about it, and we're talking about adaptation, and evolution. We're talking about all these things, and my son says something very insightful. He says, "He says I'm not sure God created it in 24 uh, hour days because because God is really slow." 
And I thought, you know what? You're right. <laughs> to us, God is really slow. But that's our perspective. You know, God is slow when we look at our life as a little blip of 70, 80, 90 years, or maybe even shorter. God, God is really slow. But, but if we truly believe what the Bible says, that we are spiritual beings destined to live for eternity, then timing is relative, isn't it? It's relative to our short life here on earth, to all of eternity, <laughs> to the 70, 80, 90 years that you have, to, 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 to forever and ever and ever and ever, right, and ever, and the, the life that just goes on. And that way we can understand maybe God has a, a, a different plan for timing. You know, I think in our culture, we want the shorter route. I know I do. I, I like quick answers. I like quick results and quick responses. We like, we're a microwave culture. Even sometimes a microwave is too slow for me, right? So I need a super-powered microwave. We're a microwave culture. We want things instantaneous, and I think this overflows into our faith. I think we want to see change in our life instantaneous. I think we want to see miracles in the moment. And we have expectations that things happen quicker than the way God does or how God moves. You know, we celebrate stories of radical transformation and testimonies. And I do this, and I love it. You know, the, 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 the overnight sensational story, someone bound up in drugs and alcohol or a life of sin, radically transformed and now living for Jesus. We love stories. And that, that shows to, you know, the power and possibilities of God. But let me say, that is not all of our journey. In fact, for most of us, our testimonies are boring to an outside world, or even to an inside world of the people in the church. Yeah, I lived for Jesus my whole life. I kind of had some ups and downs, and, you know, I made a few mistakes, but, you know, God kept saving me and kept, you know. See, our life in Christ is slow transformation, it, and it's the entire time that we live that is slow transformation. This is why the heroes, my heroes in this church, my favorite people in this church, you know who my favorite people are? Those who are north of 70, 80, or 90 and still following Jesus. Because they've been through everything. They've seen just about everything. And they still come to our church even though the music is loud. <laughs> and I love them. I absolutely love them. And we look at them and we want sensational stories. But I tell you what, young people, you want to grow in your faith. You start hanging around some old people. I did call them old, all right? You start hanging around mature people. Is that better? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to get some emails. All right. God will often lead you on the longer route. I think the longer route not only applies to where in love life, but I think it applies 
to people's journey. Some of you have been praying for a son or a daughter, for a brother or a sister, for a mom or dad to receive faith in Jesus Christ and for, to be radically saved and changed. And some of them are on the longer route. And I want to encourage you to keep praying and keep persevering. Why does God keep us on the longer route? It leads me to the next one. Because God prefers to lead you into impossible situations. God took them from the short route to the desert. They're going to the land of Canaan, right? They're going to cross the Jordan River and go up to what we know as Israel today. He takes them on the longer route to the Red Sea. This is a terrible military strategy. And the Egypt knows it. He looks at him. He's like, these Israelites are idiots. Right? They're wandering around in confusion. And where they go is to the Red Sea. And, and the Bible literally says this, that they're hemmed in by the desert. How terrible a military strategy is that? If you're going to go fight, you find the high ground. And you have a plan of escape. Right? You don't get yourself stuck with your backs against the wall against a giant raging sea. And God led them on the longer route, the harder route, to the impossible route in the impossible situation. And their backs are against the wall. Their backs are against the wall. And what is God doing? God is actually in this moment, is enticing Egypt to follow them. He's using Israel as bait. Do you know what crankbait is? It's like this weird, like, lure with, like, a big, like, thing on the front, and they go through the water like this, like, and you're fishing. It's like God's throwing crankbait in front of Egypt. Hey, come get us. Come get, I want you to come. We're all by the sea. It's like, oh, they're all stuck by the sea. Let's muster every chariot and horse and, and military leader we have. And let's go after them because we lost our labor and we lost their service. And so let's go. And God leads Israel to an impossible situation to trick Egypt into getting them to follow. God will often lead you to places where you don't see a way out. And I want to tell you, what is the way out? The way out is the same way out for Israel. It's through desperation. What happens when their backs are against the wall or against the sea, and they have nowhere to run, and Pharaoh, who's a demigod, comes and he's about to pummel them, and they're there, they cry out to Moses, and Moses cries out to God. And they go to this place of desperation. The way out is through desperation. I think God leads us to impossible situations for two reasons. You can write this down if you want to. The first of all is this. Is he wants us to have complete dependency upon him. When we are dependent upon him in prayer, upon him, our prayer life goes up. Desperate times calls for desperate prayer. All right? You, you didn't get that one. Desperate times calls for desperate prayer. There is something about desperation that leads you closer to the heart of God. 
There is something about desperation and it creates a dependency upon who God is. You see, in impossible situations, sometimes is exactly where God wants you. Why? Because your only way out is through God. Your only way out is a miracle. Your only way out is the power of God. And so if you're in an impossible situation, this is your time to lean into God, to press in to what he has for you in your life, to believe in the miracle, to believe in the plan that he has. The second reason is this, is God wants to provide the way. God wants to provide the way. He wants to bless you. He wants to, uh, he wants to take care of you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to give you the power that you need. Why? Because he gets the glory. I want to say one more thing about this before I move on. You find it interesting that in the Bible, God always wins through losing. God wins in the most impossible situations. I want to tie this to Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, all his disciples and all the people thought the devil won. Jesus won through losing. And three days later is when he was victorious. This is the faith that we have, by the way. Jesus said this, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. What? I want to keep all my life. I want to keep my possessions. I want, to, I want to keep everything that I have. He says, if you want to reach the top, you've got to go to the bottom. You see, God wants to provide for you. God wants to provide for you. God will often lead you places to where you don't see a way out. Leads me to the next one. Where God leads you, he prepares you. Where God leads you, he prepares you. It says this in verse 18 of chapter 17. It says that the Israelites were armed and ready for battle. The interesting thing is, is that they didn't know how to fight. They've been enslaved for 430 years. There's no military structure. There's no generals or commanders, troops, right? There's nothing. They're not organized. They don't know how to fight. They just plundered Egypt for their weapons. They don't even know how to swing a sword but they're prepared and ready for battle. And God is doing something in them in this place. You see, slavery is done when they go through the Red Sea, but the battle has just begun. Isn't that so true of a Christian life? You know, sometimes you think that the Christian life is all cotton candy and bubble gum. Man, if I just, you know, your best life now, if I just follow Jesus, everything's gonna be great. I'm gonna be rich. <laughs> everything's gonna... Just fall into place. Why is it that sometimes life seems to get harder before it gets better when you follow Jesus? Especially in a culture that is anti-Jesus and anti-gospel. It's gonna get harder. It is hard to follow Jesus in this culture. There is a fight. Paul said this, he said to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Right? But the conflict that you have in the future, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but I'll give you a teaser. The conflict that you have in the future is nothing compared to the conflict that you had in the past because Egypt has been defeated. 
And the fights that you have in the future come from a different place because you don't come from a place of slavery and bondage. You come from a place of freedom. And you fight from a place of victory because you've already had victory. There's a difference. There's a difference in fighting as a victor versus fighting as someone who's already been defeated and been enslaved. Where God leads you, he prepares for you. You know our, our faith, that we have a dangerous faith. Right? No, nowhere in the Bible does it promise safety, security in the physical sense, especially in the New Testament. Right? You, you cannot find where the life in Christ is a, 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 the cush life. You just can't find it. We have a dangerous faith. We have a dangerous faith. It's difficult, it's hard, but it's good. And I think for some people here, and as I was thinking about this last night, I think that there's some people here that there is fear in doing what God has asked you to do. Because maybe what God has asked you to do does not line up with the trajectory that's been in your life or what your parents expect you to do or what your friends expect you to do. And there is fear. A few weeks ago, I, I did uh, uh, encouraged people to uh, receive a call to vocational ministry, pastoral ministry. And, and, and I, just, I, I just feel like I need to keep kind of pressing on this in our church for a while. Because I, I believe there are people here in our church that God has called. We're all called, and we're all called to ministry. But God has called in, to ministry in a pastoral, vocational sense, into the fivefold ministry, we could say it that way. And there is fear in your life. There's fear in your life. The, 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 the road and the path to following Jesus is not the easiest path. We have a dangerous faith. But I want to encourage you to keep stepping forward and keep walking through the doors that God opens for you. Let me get to the last one. Here's the last one. Where God leads you, he provides for you. Where God leads you, he provides for you. It says this, that the Israelites walked on dry ground. I want to make a really big connection for you here. Something that took me almost 40 years to figure out, is that this dry ground, the title of my sermon is Walk on Dry Ground, this dry ground, this dry ground is significant because the author of Exodus is actually taking this back to Genesis. And the author of Exodus is Moses, and the author of Genesis is Moses, and there's a theme here that runs through the entire Bible that I didn't really figure out until the last few years. The author wants to take you to the creation story, the first few days of creation. Do you know the creation theme dominates the entire scriptures? The entire scriptures, it dominates it. The theme of land and the theme of seas. And seas in the Bible is a symbol of chaos and disorder and confusion. And land is a symbol of peace and security and stability. Let me take you to a, a few verses real quick. Genesis 1-2 says this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You know that word hovering? The images of a bird is. This is why the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is depicted as a dove. Because God's Spirit is fluttering, flapping over the primordial chaos of the seas. And what does God do? He begins to speak into, into creation. And it begins to create 
the ordered world. And so he speaks over the chaos of the seas. He orders it. This is called shalom, which is peace. And then on the third day of creation, listen to this. This happens on the third day. We can get that scripture up on the screen. Genesis 1, 9, it says this. And God said, let water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and gathered water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. What does God do? God parts the waters and he brings up dry ground. Let me take you to one more. Genesis 8, 13. It's the story of Moses after the flood. It says, by the first day of the month, Noah's six hundred and first year. I wish I could live that long. The water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. I could take you through story after story after story where the seas are chaos and disordered and the ground God always provides. You see, a lot of people think this, that Moses wrote Genesis so that we could understand the Exodus. And then when God parts the Red Sea, he does what he's always done. He's always breathed over creation, parted the waters and provided dry ground. Every time, in every story, in every time where Israel or the Christians are under attack, God provides a way. It's his nature. He parts the seas and he provides the land. Finding your way back to God is walking on dry ground. Just like the third day of creation, the third day after the crucifixion is a new creation, Jesus rises. What is Jesus called in the Bible? He's called the rock. He's called solid ground, right? There's so much. Build your house not on sand, but on the rock because the raging water will come and tear your foundation apart. I could go over and over and over and over and tell you and try to convince you of this, that all of us fight a sea and have a red sea that's raging and chaos and disorder, but God always wants to provide dry ground. And my point is this, the dry ground is Jesus. He was when, uh, when Israel walked through the Red Sea and he is for you today. And when your back is against the wall, and you're butted up against the raging seas and you don't know where to go and you're in a possible situation, God parts the sea. And we get to walk on dry ground. And on dry ground, there's fruit and there's stability. Dry ground and dry land is where we put our confidence. Walking on dry land is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the new exodus. That is the new deliverance. The first step in ordering the chaos of your life in the seas is to step into Jesus Christ and to begin to follow him. He is the dry ground. So I have a question for you and I wanna end with this. Are you walking on dry ground or are you swimming in the seas?
Is your trust in Jesus or is your trust in things of the world? And I'm convinced that some of you here are ready to take that step onto dry ground. I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. I want to ask you a question. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Some of you may have been swimming in seas of chaos and you're ready to walk through your exodus, your departure from the past and into the future. And that first step is the dry ground. It's the dry land. It's Jesus. It's to say yes to Jesus. And maybe some of you said it in the past or maybe you said it as a child, but it's time to get back to God. This is your ultimate journey home to say yes to Jesus. And in a moment, I want to ask you if that's you to lift your hand, but I want you to to just think where you're at in your life. Because I sense that some of us, that some people, you're swimming in the sea and you need a miracle and you need God to move. And you're ready to take that next step of faith. If that's you, wherever you're at, with everyone's eyes closed and every head bowed, if that's you, would you just lift up your hand so I can agree with amen. I see your hand, I see your hand, I see your hand, I see your hand. I see your hand on my right, I see your hand all the way to my right. Anyone else? I see your hand in the back. I see your hand right here. Yeah, I see your hand on my left. You can put your hands down. That's the most important step that you could ever make in your life to step towards Jesus, to lean into Jesus. And I want to, rem- I want to remind you, it's not the easy path, but it's the right one and it's the good one. And it's the one where you find ultimate safety and security because you know that your assurance and your eternal life is gonna be with Jesus in eternity, Jesus in heaven. God, we thank you for all that you've done here this morning. We thank you for giving us the exodus so that we could understand Jesus. And we celebrate you today, Lord. We honor you and we praise your name. And everyone said, amen.